The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Jennifer Saba. This week's edition is part two of our prediction series. Listen in as my colleagues discuss what's ahead for the new year. Jen, let's turn to the rather awful topic of sexual harassment, which has been in the news a lot in 2017. Your prediction is that next year it's actually going to get right into uh, the boardroom where um, directors will have to debate what this means f- uh, as another risk to their company. Tell us what all this is about. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the situation has gotten uh, so bad that um, corporate boards, they can't ignore it and they, and they have to address it. And I think um, historically, uh, sexual harassment and just misbehaving has always been in the purview of human resources. And it's always kind of been in that department. And then, If it know, got even that far. If it got even that far. And, you know, typically involved a lot of uh, non-disclosure agreements, settlements, people go away. And, you know, the, the, the company continues. Really basically about protecting the firm using secrecy. Yeah, it just basically shoving it under the rug. So I think now that in, in light of all the allegations that are out there right now, that it's just gotten to the point where um, boards can't ignore this any longer. And it's it, and it's now their issue. It is It has gotten into the boardroom. Is that because um, it's just happening so often? Or is the, I mean, if it's a boardroom issue, it's got to become either a reputational or a financial issue. Well, correct? I think it's both. Yeah. I, and I think um, to the financial aspect of it is what's probably going to make it into the boardroom. Mm-hmm. And I predict that next year there are going to be a lot of shareholders that are going to take a hard look at what is going on. And we can use 21st Century Fox as an example. One, they, one of their shareholders sued them because of all these sexual harassment and you know bad co- conduct that had been going on mm-hmm. at the company for years. And they claim, like, listen, we have lost, you've used some like 200 million, I think is what they calculated, of shareholder money and settlements and, and all sorts of things and payoffs and you know letting Roger Ailes off the hook, paying him out of his contract, that sort of thing. And, and I think investors are going to take a look at this and say, don't use our money for this. Do you see that there is there a, a, a solid group of investors that's already been focusing on this? Obviously, you've mentioned one case here, but are other investors saying that this has to be an issue? Well, I, I, I did hear from another um, investor that they are looking at it pretty closely as well. And you're starting to see this already, some results in, um, corporate, in the corporate world. Uh, Microsoft, for example, decided that they are no longer going to use arbitration and non-disclosure agreements mm-hmm. um, in, in terms of sexual harassment. So they, they're so getting rid of the secrecy. They're completely. getting rid of the secrecy completely. So if somebody comes and complains, then they can litigate it in, in mm. court if need be. I think there's, there's, there's one big um, uh, passive, so-called passive investor, State Street, which is already out there saying we're not going to vote. Um, purely if there, if there are no female candidates on boards, we're not going to vote. So I could see maybe that kind of investor, which is already looking at uh, the issues of women in the workplace on the boards could go further. Yeah, you know, that that would be a big one to get on board. I right, think. and and I think that's that's possibly the way to push this forward even more. It's to to prevent this from happening, and not not completely, but to to help alleviate the issue. More women need to be on boards, and more women need to be in the upper ranks of management. Yeah, I mean it's it's pretty dismal. I mean, you looked at some research recently, which showed. It's just it's, it's pitiful how few top jobs women have. Yeah, about 23% um, in 2017. And that, that's looking at 
all kind that's, of and chief that's, roles. Yeah, those are all chief. chief of, yeah, like human resources. So yeah, you strip chief of out human that. resources, chief marketing officers. If you stripped out those two quote unquote pink type jobs, it would be way lower. Hmm. Great. Well, thanks for talking us through that, Jen. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure your prediction is going to come true. This is going to continue to be a very big topic in 2018. Rob Siren, you've been covering Apple for mm-hmm. quite some time. You're looking at it ahead this year. You think that they are actually going to skate through some of the regulatory issues that are going to impact other tech companies. Why don't you uh, tell us why you think that is? So basically, the whole um, regulation is centered in Europe right now, um, and it's centered around two things. There's um, uh, antitrust, and there's also privacy. And on both of those sides, Apple isn't really in the Europeans' uh, gun sites. Okay. Uh, So let's take a look at um, Monopoly, for instance. So they they fined Google uh, over $2 billion last uh, this year um, for um, favoring their own products over rivals' products in in search results. And that was just kind of the... um, appetizer for the big antitrust suit, which is going on now about uh, Android, their, their domination of that, and whether they're using Android to favor their other services. Um, and if you think about and if you think about um, Apple's position, you know, they're mainly the iPhone is basically the entire company. It's over two thirds of sales. And in every single market, it's it's um, it's only a small chunk of the market. It's only about 20 percent or so in most European countries. Okay. That's nowhere near monopoly. OK. Now let's and take Android a, is, is and Android is is, is the other part okay. of it, yeah, and now let's take a look at the other side. So there's um, privacy. Um, Apple's actually made a point of saying if we have any of your data, we do not use it to sell to anyone. We do not use your data for um, selling goods or advertising services, um, and that's very different than say Facebook or Google, which their whole business is built upon that. Right. And starting in um, in the spring, late spring, um, there's going to be a new rules passed in Europe. And what these do is they put very strict rules on what companies can do with people's data. Um, for instance, you can you've got the right of um, to be forgotten if you don't want companies to have your have your data. You can just ask them to eliminate it. Or so, can, does that mean like you you opt out or what? what is, or they just scrub you, you clean? Like uh, they have to scrub you. It. They have to scrub you clean actually. Okay. And the other part of this is that. Um, you have to, companies have to ask permission to use your data, and they have to ask it in very common, uh, very plain language. Um, and they're not allowed to to um, take away their service if you answer negative. For instance, mm-hmm. so if, if Facebook says, um, "Okay, we're collecting your data, and we're going to sell this data to other people so they can sell you um, sell you stuff," and if you say no, Facebook still has to go ahead and do that. It still has Me- to go ahead. They, still has to go ahead and offer you a service. You off the service. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and with this, put it together, and probably a lot of customers are going to say, no, you know, you can't have my data, or you can't use it. Right. And that's going to really hurt companies like Google and Facebook, which are basically built entirely upon people's data. So, Rob, do you have any sense of if this is, I mean, it's bad for both Google and Facebook, obviously. D- does it hurt one more than other? Um, I don't know. It, it will have to actually see when it gets implemented yeah. because there are a lot of questions still about how it's going to um, certain aspects of the rules are going to change uh, according to each country depending on how they're implemented um, so we have to actually see how that happens so it, it's it's a bit early to say you know we'll probably find out later in this year exactly how much it is hurting them the other thing is it's it's only in Europe and a lot of countries are starting to use Europe, look to Europe and say, okay, what are they doing there? We can do similar sorts of things in our country. 
And I wouldn't be surprised to see similar sorts of rules enacted in, in other countries as well. But like here here in the United States? Probably not in the United Probably States. Not. <laughs> well, I mean, there is some movement. Moving, there is some movement to kind of like get the data. Yeah. Um, but but certainly issues. in Asian countries, for instance. Okay. All right. Well, cool. I know you'll be following that. Thank you very much, Rob. You're welcome. Gina Chan, you think a political doomsday is approaching in the United States. Um, there is a splintering going on between Democrats and Republicans. What's happening in Washington and what are the consequences of what you think of this really kind of drift in both directions for both parties? Yeah, there's a bit of a civil war going on in both the Republican and Democratic parties where both groups are being pushed to the right and the left, respectively. Um, we've seen it with uh, White, former White House chief strategist Steve Bannon and some of the candidates he's backing, um, which puts him actually against many members of the Republican establishment. Um, we've also seen it on the left with uh, some of the most prominent senators like Dianne Feinstein um, facing primary challengers with more liberal candidates in ways that they hadn't seen in the past. So basically, if you're a moderate, and that used to be a way to go for a, for a long time, <laughs> it seems like there's, there's little room if you have moderate views one way or the other. Yeah, it's actually really a shame because, you know, those moderates usually provide the bridge from sort of the extremists on both sides of the party to allow for talks, allow for compromise in Congress. Um, but that's uh, becoming um, less and less common as some of these moderates disappear. Um, just in the House alone, about two dozen Republicans have announced that they're not going to run for re-election for various reasons. And some of these people actually haven't been in office for that long. They're maybe on their second term. Some are even first term politicians. Um, but they just feel like given the mood here in Washington, it's it's not really fun to be a member of Congress, um, especially in the House where some of these divisions are more prominent. And they'd rather, frankly, just go back home than uh, be here in D.C. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing evidence of this uh, with the with the tax cut that was just passed, where not one single Democrat voted for the, the tax reform um, that just was pushed forward. So, I mean, it, it, this balkanization that we're going to be seeing, I think, a lot more of is this what's going to be the outcome of it? Yeah, it's uh, it's believe it or not, if you think there's already gridlock and, and dysfunction in Washington, it will just increase that. Um, these more extreme members of the party are the ones who are also more inclined to push for trade wars, to push for uh, government shutdowns, which is actually uh, something that's up for debate in, in Congress now. Um, they're uh, more inclined to also even risk a default on the U.S. debt um, in terms of the raising the debt ceiling, which is going to come up in uh, early in 2018. Um, so there's real economic consequences for having some of these more extreme members of the parties in Washington and, and how that plays out in policies that um, actually happen or, or don't happen. Okay, so there's going to be some collateral damage ahead. That's, a, that's really um, heartening. 
Yeah, <laughs> no, and, and the real risk to uh, economic growth. I mean, uh, both the, the right and the left agree um, that the U.S. should not be uh, involved in NAFTA, that we should actually pull out of these trade agreements. Um, they're also more willing to risk uh, the government, um, as they said, defaulting on its debt, which the last time that was under threat, um, the, at least one credit agency, the S&P, um, downgraded the U.S. Um, in, in terms of its credit rating because even just the threat of that uh, caused them to, to rethink America's fiscal health. So going forward, um, that becomes more and more likely as some of these members um, come to Washington. Okay, so a a lot of risk uh, and uncertainty. Well, um, Gina, thank you very much for coming on. You're welcome. Anthony Curry, you were looking at the top five banks in the United States and their leadership, and you noticed something curious about them. Why don't you tell us what you happened to yeah, about, about most of them. So most um, of them. I looked at Bank of America, City, uh, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley. Okay. Um, and of those five, four of them have chief executives who've been in the role longer than your average tenure um, for which is... a U.S. company, which is about seven years for a big U.S. company. Okay. Um, two of them at B of A and uh, Bank of America in there. For, they're going into their ninth year, uh, whereas um, Jamie Dimon, at uh, J.P. Morgan and Lloyd Blankfein at Goldman Sachs are, well, heading into their 13th year at some point over the next few months. Jamie Dimon, actually, just about now. Okay. So it that makes you wonder. seems like a long time. If you've been there that long, and there are certain, there are certain uh, theories out there that you, know, you stop being an effective CEO once you've been in the job for six, seven years, say. I mean, that's it's somewhat apocryphal, but let, let's just assume that you know at some point you've got to start thinking, when do they go? Well, actually, 2018 is a great year for a lot of these guys to think about leaving. Yeah. I mean, do you have on any, a high? Do, do you have any exactly? Do you have any sense um, just from looking at these banks and covering them for as long as you have that there is I mean, succession is a big deal. And I always feel like when I read about these institutions, mm-hmm. there's always like backfighting and backstabbing and people getting kicked yeah. out and whatnot. Do you have a sense that there is a plan that there are plans in place? in some of these I think there are, there are plans banks. in most of them. Actually, uh, strangely, the. the, the there's a succession issue at a, at a smallish U.S. bank, $120 billion in assets bank called M&T, where the long-standing CEO, Robert Wilmers, died uh, in mid-December. Um, and he was 83 years old, been in the job for over 30 years, and they're replacing him with three different people from the firm for now. So mm. they say they have a succession plan, but, you know, they come out a bit weird sometimes. J.P. Morgan has one. They won't say who it is. And they're one of the banks that has lost a lot of people over the years because, of course, you know, if Jamie Dimon's not going anywhere, if the CEO's not going anywhere, then the executives below them think, well, I'll go somewhere else and get a, a CEO's job, which some of them have. Um, but here's the thing. I mean, all four of these banks, and arguably City as well, where the CEO's been in charge for just, I think, five years, all of them can look at where their stock prices are and where their returns are and say, you know, considering that the financial crisis took a long time to get over, now would be a good time for me to leave on a relative high. I mean, J.P. Morgan, for example, Jamie Dimon is the longest-serving CEO of the bunch. He's got the best returns. In fact, he's the only one whose bank has produced returns since 2010, which is better than the S&P 500. Um, So logically, he should be the one to go. He's been there longest, has the best returns, and therefore could go, sayonara, I'm fine. He's probably not going to, but I think if you look across these five, um, or four certainly if you exclude Citigroup, one of them 
statistically speaking, really ought to be leaving in 2018 just because they've been there so long. All right. Well, we'll see if that uh, prophecy comes to light. (laughs) Thanks, Anthony. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank all my guests. And hats off to our producers, Andrew D'Antonio, Ryan Warner, and Freddie Joyner. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at BreakingViews.com and subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes. Don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.